Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and welcome to episode 36, in which my guest will be longtime independent wrestling promoter Sheldon Goldberg, a friend of mine who I've known now for the past couple of years, and I'll talk a little bit about how. And I'll also talk a little bit more about him in a second. But, uh, and this is related, I I first want to mention that uh, now as I'm recording this, as I'm recording this, it is uh, the day after getting back from the Cauliflower Alley Club reunion in Las Vegas. The 56th annual reunion was held at the Plaza Hotel and Casino. I went with uh, my lovely wife, Mrs. Solomon, And we had a great time in Las Vegas. Uh, Last year was the first time that we went to CAC. I'd heard about it for so many years. Finally went. And this time uh, uh, we got a little bit more of the full taste of it because last year it was um, a smaller crowd because of COVID. So if you don't know a lot about the CAC, although I suspect most of the people listening to this show probably would, it is worth finding out about. Cauliflower Alley Club is kind of a fraternal organization, nonprofit in the wrestling uh, industry. It's been around since the 60s, founded by Iron Mike Mazurki. And um, he was also the longtime president. And it's just, it's a great place to network, meet people, be around, you know, uh, even people in the business that, in my case, that I might know, and in some cases haven't met in real life or or haven't, Met in a very long time. I ran into a lot of old and new friends. I got to hang out with some of the 605 luminaries, like, of course, the great Lou Kippelman and and the late Dan Farron and Vandal Drummond, a.k.a. Kurt Brown, who I was thrilled to meet. Um, I Gosh, I, I, I talked to Chris Goff, who was a longtime producer at WWE, who I hadn't seen since I worked for the company many years ago. Um, the Banquets were very interesting uh, people like Jerry Lawler, JBL, Rey Mysterio, uh, Conan, Kevin Sullivan. I was glad to see him get honored. Uh, and we talked a lot about um, my book, which for a very important reason, of course, my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original Sheik. As, as some of you may know, I did not have a chance to work with Sabu on the book uh, as much as I would have liked to. It just could not be worked out and actually we had never met before until this week at the CAC Uh, I was the first time ever he walked into the room and uh, I got a little nervous there thought I might uh, have to expect a punch in the face but nothing could be further from the truth he was very nice very humble very open Um, I think part of that was due to Kevin Sullivan kind of 
putting me over, putting the book over, which I was very flattered about, but Sabu was fantastic. And I gave him a copy of the book and we got to talk a little bit about his legendary uncle and uh, his place in the business. And it was just a great time to finally do that. I've been wanting to meet him and talk to him for a long time. And so those are the kind of connections that you make and you and you can make at CAC. Um, RVD was there, of course, he wrote the forward to Blood and Fire. And so we got to chat a little bit about that. And I told him how I just, I, how I was able to do the audiobook version, including reading the forward that he wrote um, in my own voice, which was a little weird. But um, so CAC was a great time. Got to also meet some readers of the book, sell some copies of the book. So it was all around well worth the trip. And of course, one of the people that I met there and that I got to talk to that I first met at CAC last year is my guest this week on the show, uh, Sheldon Goldberg, longtime pro uh, producer and promoter in the New England area. And uh, I think you're going to like this conversation because we uh, we get into some interesting topics like sort of the, the history of independent wrestling, specifically in the Northeast in the last 30 or 40 years. A lot of talk um, in that area, if that is your interest. We also got into Sheldon's past even in theater promotions and uh, in Broadway and Boston. And I'm proud to say, uh, as I could never have predicted, that this wound up being the second week in a row that you will hear a Yule Brenner anecdote or reference being included in Shut Up and Wrestle, of course, uh, uh, um, on the heels of last week's Yule Brenner uh, story and reference from RJ City. Uh, an episode, by the way, in which I'm getting a lot of positive feedback. So I hope that this is another one that I get some positive feedback on. The great Mr. Sheldon Goldberg as my guest. And I'm going to take you to that conversation right now. Okay, so right now I'd like to welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle a longtime wrestling promoter. He is the man behind New England Championship Wrestling and has been so for well over 20 years. He is an all-around promoter and producer whose career goes all the way back, and I will have to ask him about this, goes all the way back to Broadway theater in the 1970s. So we'll have to mm -hmm. talk about that. He is professional wrestling's other Goldberg I'm talking about. Mr. Sheldon Goldberg. Thank you for having me. And by the pleasure. way, I was I was around long before Bill. <laughs> so I've got a gimmick infringement claim there. If, uh, should I ever choose to press it? So should we say that he's wrestling's other Goldberg then? Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. I wouldn't think that. I, I always remember when he when he first came out. I thought it was very. I don't know if it was his choice or WCW's, but I thought mm -hmm. it was very bold and brave to have a pro wrestler who just comes out as Bill Goldberg. <laughs> right. We, we take it for right. granted now, but at the time it was like, so is, am I wrestling a chiropractor? What's happening? Is this a, a guy in a exactly. college? Is this guy going to sue me? Is he going to do my taxes? <laughs> right. <laughs> and I say this as somebody named Solomon. So I'm allowed to oh, say right. things like this, but, but no, I, I always thought it was very cool that he used his name, but we're not here mm. to talk about Bill Goldberg. We're here to talk about Sheldon Goldberg. So, um, so, the uh, New England Championship Wrestling, I have that right. You've been doing that for what, since about 2000? 2000? 2000 is correct, yes. 
That's amazing. So what's the three years? Because every, everybody talks about uh, independent wrestling and how how hard it is these days, especially to have something that's sustainable. And I think we met originally or uh, one of the times we met was last year at Cauliflower Alley Club, where right, they had right. that great uh, promoters like workshop thing that happened mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. many indie promoters were getting up and, and speaking. And it was so cool. So, I mean, what is uh, what's the secret? Uh, I don't know that there's a secret. In in my case, it was really trial and error. You know, I, I didn't get into promoting because I, I had, had that that was a goal. I just sort of fell into it. I uh, had a whole different career before I, you alluded to it, I had a whole different career uh, in theater as a producer and before that as a press agent. And, uh, and that started to wind down. And... Uh, wrestling was sort of a hobby i did a newsletter called matt marketplace for collectors of wrestling memorabilia for a number of years and uh, i met a guy in the course of that by the name of tony rumble ah yes and the boston bad boy tony rumble who i had met at at one of john arezzi's wrestling conventions in new york and I, i met him at this convention in 1990 and turns out that we grew up less than a mile away from each other, but we had never met until that moment. And so after meeting, we became fast friends and he was starting to run shows. He had been working for Mario Savoldi for the old ICW and uh, was on their TV and was producing their TV in some cases. And uh, he started running independent shows and uh, I was uh, selling a little merch here at some shows here and there, but I was just, more or less doing this as a hobby. I didn't have any designs on making it a career or whatever. I just enjoyed doing it. And I enjoyed meeting all the people in wrestling, some of whom I knew from when I was a kid. You know, I had the pen pals in the back of the magazine. I had a couple of people that I wrote to going back to the the 70s. So um, I started doing this and I got close to him. And he never asked me, for any money to set up a table or anything like that. He just said, just like having you around. And so I said, well, let me, let me at least try to do something for you. I mean, I used to do PR, I've, you know, did a little bit of graphic design or whatever. Let me see what I can do to help you out. So I started doing his website and started doing the tickets and the flyers and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we worked together on a bunch of stuff until he unfortunately passed away in 1999. And after his passing, um, decided to uh, start up New England Championship Wrestling. It was one of those things where I was going to always wonder, if I if I didn't do it, I would always wonder what would have happened if I did. So I didn't want to have that regret in life. And besides, I really, really enjoyed being around independent wrestling. To me, it was like, it was just this fascinating thing where you've got these guys who are trying to make it big or guys who were big, who are just, you know, off contract and, you know, back to their roots doing high school gyms and that sort of thing. And, and I really felt that because of the background that I had in theater as a producer and PR guy and whatnot, that I had something to offer it. And so uh, I became a wrestling promoter. That's something. And and the name of Tony Rumble, too. I um for people that I mean, if you were on sort of like the 
the wrestling scene in the Northeast in those days in, in New England and New York, you know, I was in Brooklyn. Uh, right. That was a name that you definitely knew that that was a fixture. And you mentioned the Savoldis and ICW. And I used to cover some of their shows when I was in college, I would do like little write-ups and things in the newspaper mm-hmm. and things like that when they would come to Brooklyn or Queens. And so, yeah, Tony Rumble was definitely a name that was known back then. And the TV and their TV show too. It was one I remember when I first got cable, in which was late. It was ninety two until, but by the time mm-hmm. my neighborhood got wired for cable, so like right. there really wasn't any territorial wrestling anymore. The only the only stuff I could see outside of WCW and WWF was there was the very beginning of ECW, and mm-hmm. I remember there was GWF in Texas. And there was um, there was that there was the Savoldi's TV, which which I, I didn't right. even realize that Tony was producing their their television. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other interesting thing about that period of time is that as the territories were winding down and dying out, being around independent shows, you really thought you were on the ground floor of something. Mm. Yes. Like the, the show business person in my head said, well, wait a minute, this you know, there's a niche here. That because now WWF, WCW, they're not coming to your town every month. Now they're coming three times a year, four times a year, whatever. The the spot shows and high school gyms and that sort of thing, those were disappearing. So people like Tony Rumble and you know others, Killer Kowalski, of course, before him, uh, had been running spot shows for many many years off of his school. But that was disappearing, and that was a whole new portion of wrestling that was coming into vogue at that time. And so it was pretty interesting to be on the very beginnings of that. That really was. You, you know, that's that's very true um, in terms of what we now think of as independent wrestling and the indie wrestling scene. It really started in that era after the territories died. It's that the the very tail end of the 80s the beginning of the 90s uh right. you know Keith Greenberg has a great book on the history of indie wrestling where he he goes back even to the old days of like the outlaw promotions and stuff and that right. was kind mm-hmm. of like a different animal but sure. with with the territories going away the difference with the territories was they were all on television right so they were right. all televised in their local regions and if you lived in that region as people know that was the wrestling that you knew it was it wasn't mm-hmm. considered minor league or anything to those fans that was the wrestling that was on tv and so then when right. all that goes away you're right you do have this vacuum where these companies or i don't even know in a lot of cases if you could even call them companies promotions whatever you right. want to call them were coming in and they were trying to fulfill this demand that was left by you know one or two national companies that, like you said, they couldn't be everywhere all at once. And right. what I found interesting about it at the time, because I was a kid going to some mm-hmm. of those really early shows. I was like in high school, not really knowing what it was, just going like, oh, okay, I know some of these guys because they've been on WWF TV. Oh, Greg the Hammer Valentine's right. going to be there. Tony Atlas mm-hmm. is going to be there. So mm-hmm. it it was this thing where we were trying to – understand what it was and what we didn't know at the time what i found out later from writing about it and covering it was that a lot of the promoters at that time doing it were promoters that and i mean in my case in new york let's say had 
previously worked with the WWF. They were like, like Tommy D was one. Tommy of D, yeah. I got to yeah. know him well. He used mm-hmm. to do the little spot shows or the C shows, whatever you want to call them around the, the, the right. New York area. And he would use Vince's talent. They would get Vince's talent and it would be his little show. And then when that dried up, they had to sort of create their own thing. Yeah. I started to say before I had no designs on becoming a wrestling promoter where I got to wrestling, where my life intersected with professional wrestling was in two places. One was working in the theater district in Boston. The guy that used to be the worldwide wrestling Federation, local promoter in Boston was a man by the name of Abe Ford. Abe Ford was a promoter of sorts, an agent, and he used to book strippers, he used to book uh, country music acts, he used to book all kinds of entertainment in different kinds of venues, and somehow he connected with Vince McMahon Sr., and he became the local promoter for Boston in the late 60s until they had a falling out and a lawsuit between the two of them in the 70s. I'm not sure how aware you are of this, but... um, I had heard that story about about basically, I think the Vachans kind of sold him out to Vince senior, something to that effect. Like he was trying to feel them out for a a buyout or something. Exactly. And and they went to Vince. Yeah. He didn't like the terms that Vince was supplying talent on. And so he wanted to, uh, he wanted to get out of it and go with Montreal. And as you said, the Fashans got involved in that and gave the Iggy to Vince senior. And uh, there was a lawsuit and Abe Ford actually won that lawsuit. Vince Sr. had to pay him off. I didn't know that part of the story. Yes. And he put Ernie Roth and uh, Bobby Harmon in as the local promoters in Abe's stead once he got out. I think it was uh, 77, maybe 78. I think it was even earlier than that. because like, when maybe, I, maybe so, yeah. Yeah, because when I was doing the Sheik book, one of the things that I mm-hmm. found was because Ernie Roth went from Detroit to New York mm-hmm. by about 72, 73. And I mm-hmm. believe one of the... One of the conditions, one of the reasons he went was that not only was Vince saying, I would like you to be a manager, he was saying, I'll give you a piece of my territory. I'll let you run Boston with Bobby. And by right. the way, my son wants to learn the ropes. Can you help him out a little bit? So mm-hmm, I think it mm-hmm. I think it might have even been yeah. early 70s. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It had to be around 74, 75, somewhere around there. Yeah. So Abe Ford's office was in the Steinert Piano Building on Boylston Street in Boston. The Steinert Piano Building was where they sold Steinway pianos. They had a showroom, and it was the last building in the city of Boston that had a live human being as an elevator operator. (laughs) So above where they sold the pianos, they had a, a floor of what looked like little offices, but what they actually were were rehearsal rooms, and you could rent them by the hour. And if you were a piano teacher and you wanted to give piano lessons, you rented one of these rooms. If you were a violin teacher, et cetera. And at the end of the hall, if you remember, it was kind of like the movie Broadway, Danny Rose. Did you ever see that with Woody Allen? Yes. I, that's what I love. Well, it. It's one of my favorites. Abe Ford's office is at the end of this hallway and there's like opera singers here. And there's a piano teacher here and a guy with a violin and a saxophone. And, and at the end there's Abe Ford and his secretary, whose name escapes me now, but Everything in that office was like from 20 years earlier, like the rotary phone, the file cabinets, the the electric typewriter. Everything was like 20 years behind where it was. So I would see him all the time 
um, on the street and uh, working in the theaters at that time. You know, if he ever he needed tickets to a show or we had a new show with an off-Broadway tryout that was coming in and we wanted to hand out some tickets, give out some comps, you know, I would reach out to him and say, hey, would you like to go? I can get you some tickets, whatever. And so I became friendly with him. I mean, we weren't super good friends that had, you know, that, that broke bread all the time or whatever, but I knew him well enough to see him on the street and say hello and offer him tickets and so on and so forth. So that was one place where my life intersected with pro wrestling. The other was a little later when I started uh, actually producing plays and getting involved in that end of, of, of the theater business. They had a, a, um, a B'nai B'rith chapter of people who were in the advertising industry in Boston. Mm-hmm. And they asked me to come and speak one time because I had been you know, producing plays and so on and so forth. And so here's this Jewish guy doing this. Oh, well, let's grab him and take him to lunch or whatever. So... Uh, I go to this thing, and uh, there's a guy there who introduces himself to me, who is a guy who, um, he had an advertising agency. He specialized in car dealers. But in addition to that, he also was the guy who placed the Worldwide Wrestling Federation television shows in syndication, and his name is Joe Perkins. Yes, I I knew him. Now, you know that name. Yeah, right? he was on the board of directors for a long time. Yes, he was one of the linchpins of the national expansion of that, WWF. That's a big name. I, now I'm going to just briefly interrupt you because yeah. that mm-hmm. is a name. I'm glad you mentioned that name because his name never gets brought up anymore. And I remember right. when I worked there, which was already well after the expansion. I mean, mm-hmm. he was he was still on the board. And he was talked about in reverent tones as being somebody that Vince owed everything to, that he was so grateful to for having facilitated, like you said, the national expansion. He was not, you know, a wrestling person per se. He was a TV person and, and he doesn't really get the credit he deserves. Right. He worked for senior. That's right. And he, 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 he became, very enamored of Vincent Kennedy McMahon. He he thought very highly of him. He kind of sympathized with him being the boss's son who was kind of on the outside looking in and all that. And when uh, Vince took over, you know, Joe threw his weight behind him. And as I said, he was a linchpin in the national expansion by, you know, going to all these uh, territories where, you know, uh, some other uh, company show was running and get WWF television on there instead. So he was a big linchpin in terms of, of getting their television in the days of, of uh, syndication. Right. When that was the prime way of, of, of distributing their shows, he was the the prime mover in uh, expanding the markets outside of the Northeast. So, well, I know interesting guy too. Yeah. And I know even before uh, Vince, Jr. had taken over that um, the WWF show was on in New York and elsewhere. It was on WOR, which was which was a syndicated network. But it really was, even though it wasn't it wasn't quite the same as TBS, but it was it was a super station. And again, you don't hear that much about that either. It was shown Mm -hmm. in other parts of the country. So because of 
that. It would be the kind of thing that would be like part of your cable package, where if you lived somewhere else, like, oh, it's this New York syndicated affiliate. And so even in the Vince Senior days, there was a little bit of penetration going on. So I'm wondering if, and meaning nationally, I'm wondering if Joe Perkins, he must have had something to do with that as well, with about about getting. Oh yeah, absolutely, sure, sure. Makes you wonder. He he would tell little stories about about um, the expansion about how uh, Vince had this falling out with the other promoters and. He, we were having lunch one day and he says, oh, there's this mums out in, in Minneapolis named Vern Gagne. And uh, we're going to take his top guy and we're going to we're going to run that son of a bitch out of business. And blah, blah, blah. So that was That's pretty great. That was back in 82. So I got yeah. a little preview of, of what was to come. Well, that I've you know, I've heard similar things because I know, you know, Vern Gagne mm. was particularly on the hit list you know no, no matter no yeah. matter what they say it, you know he was it was almost personal and i've even know i i know i've spoken to people who were at wwe long before me who were there at mm-hmm. the time all this was going on and right. i've heard stories about vince in meetings of that nature just mentioning him by name specifically and and just be right. you know i remember somebody who worked there once who who didn't really you know this was a corporate person didn't really know a lot about wrestling history, but they'd been in the company since 84. And I remember this person once at a party telling me, having no clue who this was, mm-hmm. telling me, God, I remember back then, you know, Vince, he always used to talk about this guy. What was his name? Gagne or Ganya? He wouldn't shut up about this guy. He was obsessed with mm-hmm. this guy. And it all just started clicking. Like, it really was like, like he was almost like, even, especially in the beginning, even more than Crockett, it seems like it was Ganya who was like the number one target for Vince. Well, he had the biggest territory geographically in the United States. And what Vince was all about then was getting enough big markets with his television that he could turn around and sell advertising instead of it being a barter, which is what how how a lot of these shows used to get on television. Uh, like uh, the Sheik in Detroit, he never paid to get his television on. He had a right. barter deal with the local station in Detroit. And so, you know, Vince would go in there with uh, either Joe or somebody else say, hey, we'll pay you to put our show on. Yeah, which how could you say no to that? I mean, there there were even some in some cases with Mm -hmm. smaller stations or maybe in smaller markets where they were desperate for programming, where the the stations would be paying the wrestling promotion for the right to carry the show, which, you know, it's funny. It's gone full circle now because that's WWE's Mm. main revenue source these days is TV rights. Right. But but Mm. back in those days, you know, the idea of a wrestling promotion paying the TV, paying for TV. It, it was not that common. It was kind of rare and it was a sweetheart deal. You couldn't pass up. It also really emphasized how much wrestling almost was like an infomercial, you know, in a way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I would look at Joe and I said, geez, this guy's making it. He, he would tell me, you know, that he was doing extremely well. And I'm thinking this guy never took a bump in his life. <laughs> you know, if anything, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty unathletic. I mean, I have furniture in this house that's more athletic than I am. But, you know, here's this guy making all this money in wrestling and, and never stepped in a ring. You know, maybe there's hope for me. So <laughs> that's true. So you there can... you go. That, that's where wrestling and my life intersected. And then becoming friends with Tony Rumble and starting to help him out. That's when I actually became a promoter. 
That's fascinating. And I didn't know about the Abe Ford connection too, either. Um, I don't know. I don't know what his timeline is as far as I'm assuming he, there's no way he can still be living, but I I don't know. No, he's not. He's not living. Did he, was he aware, was he around when you first got into promotion? So did you still Mm -hmm. know him at that time? Wrestling promotion. I I didn't really speak to him too often because I I wasn't working in theater anymore. So I, I wouldn't see him. But um, it's funny. He he rarely talked about wrestling after after you know his suit with uh, with Vince Senior. He rarely talked about it. He he was involved with Killer Kowalski. Um, Kowalski had TV on his own in Boston very briefly in about eighty two, somewhere around that period of time. It was a show on on Channel 25, which at the time was owned by the Christian Broadcasting Network. And the show is called Bedlam from Boston. And it lasted maybe a year or so. Of course, Bedlam from Boston was the name of Paul Bowser's brief television in 1960 on WBZ Channel 4 here in Boston, which didn't last too too long. But uh, Bowser passed away, and that was the end of that. But um, so, yeah. and Bowser was uh, the guy in Boston since forever, which right. which then um, it became Abe Ford. But the difference with Abe Ford was he was Paul Bowser was like the man. He was the top banana, whereas Abe right. Ford there was, was like Tony a Santos satellite. in the middle of that. Right. Tony, Tony Santos. Santos was in the middle of that. Right. Santos and, was the guy that really became sort of the leading promoter in the area after Bowser passed away. Wasn't he uh, Bowser's assistant originally? He was. Yes. Yes. And then with with a with Abe Ford, because I know that what I'd always heard that when Vince was that when Vince Sr. was consolidating his own thing. And when he you know, he went he starts in Washington, D.C., he gets Madison Square Garden, which is like the linchpin. And then basically, as he started to take over the Northeast, the next place he went to what I had heard was Boston to try to make it like almost like a satellite of New York, that that was like the the beginning. I don't think that. Boston was next. He had he had uh, Philly, Philly before Boston. Baltimore. Yeah, yeah. Boston was kind of on the tail end of that because Boston It's funny. But there was no wrestling TV in Boston for quite a number of years. From 1960 till about 1969, 70, there was no television in Boston, no wrestling on TV. Uh, what happened was Abe Ford had gotten the Worldwide Wrestling Federation show on what was then Channel 38, which was at the time owned by the Archdiocese of Boston. And the first few months of promoting Boston on the back of this television on on the Catholic station, it didn't work because at the time, UHF television was relatively new and not a lot of people had UHF sets. So they tried it again about a year or two later, and that time it clicked because more people had UHF. And by that time, he had gotten on Channel 56 in Boston, which was owned by a company called Kaiser Broadcasting. It was an independent station. And then it really started to click. So, And so did he um, 
talking about Abe Ford, then was mm-hmm. did he have his own show? Uh, you that was no. so he he, he he was getting v- Vince's TV, right? That's correct. He was getting Vince's tapes. Yeah, and um, I know there was that really big Fenway Park show that he did, which right. I think was sixty nine, and it had been the first wrestling, the first wrestling show at Fenway since maybe like the thirties, and and. Right. And and the only one since then, I mean, it never. I don't think it's ever right. been back. And that was uh, it's never been back. Yeah. Bruno and Kowalski and the Sheik right. versus Bulldog Brower in the cage. Right, right. It did not draw as well as he had hoped it would draw. It hmm. basically did a little bit better than a regular house show. And this was wow. That's that's unfortunate. And because this was also yeah. before any of the big states uh, Shea Stadium shows that that Vince right. did. I always wondered right. why they never went to Yankee Stadium. I don't know if that was, if mm. they, you know, they just didn't want them there. <laughs> Shea was like the the easier get. It was probably the latter. Yeah, something like that. But yeah, yeah that was one of the first ones. I mean, the, in terms of doing like a attempting to do a stadium show using WWF mm. people, I think in the early 60s, right. they had done the one at Roosevelt Stadium, although I have no idea the size of that place. I know it was outdoors. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But um the so you know what I want to ask you too is we're talking about get that whole early stage of indie wrestling and you're right. getting into it and it's and it's been, you know, fermenting for a few years. What was the scene like at that time? Like I'm talking about when you started New England Championship. What was yeah. the, the indie wrestling scene like? around that time for you? Good question. What what it was, was you had Killer Kowalski, who would have shows that he would run off of his school. And it was a guy that was with him who would run his own shows, a guy by the name of Richard Byrne. He had a karate school, which Kowalski housed his wrestling school in. And so sometimes Byrne would be the promoter, sometimes Walter would be the promoter. Um, but you got to remember that by this time, we're talking like the early 90s, mm. you know, Walter was already a senior citizen. You know, so all these shows followed the same formula. There'd be a couple of off contract or, you know, book through the WWF office, a couple of names, and then the rest would be Kowalski students or local guys. Um, Kowalski. Uh, there is a guy, um, Jeff Costa, who was a student of Kowalski's who branched off on his own and started his own wrestling school in New Hampshire. And he was running shows for a while. It's like six degrees of separation from Kowalski. Kowalski trained this guy. He'd go off on his own. He'd train guys and he'd run his own shows. There was a guy in, in New Bedford, um, uh, who had shows. And he was, um, why can't I think of his name off the top of my head? I'm sorry. That's all right. Uh, Joe Eugenio. Joe Eugenio was a guy who was a referee and he had a school and was training kids and, and he was running in, uh, Fall River in that area, south of Boston. He was running there like every week with his own crew of, homegrown people and every once in a while he'd bring a name in and they'd sell a show to a high school or a 
you know, a local police group or whatever. And that's what independent wrestling was. So where it really started to change was during the Attitude Era. Yes. So now the Attitude Era comes along and now everything's heating up. So WWF now, because they've exploded in size, now they're no longer doing third-party bookings. By third-party bookings, I mean, you know, sometimes a local promoter could go to the office and say, hey, I need a couple of guys for my card. Who do you have that you can send me? And if the guys weren't booked on a, a regular house show, they would lend them out for a night. And so uh, that was drying up because the business was exploding and now they're doing two shows a night, three shows a night, whatever. So they need more guys. Right. And they're running three different towns or whatever. So, you know, the third party bookings were drying up. That was one thing that was happening. The other side to the attitude era was that the content was changing. So all of a sudden you got Steve Austin on TV every week, giving the finger, you got DX doing the crotch chop and all this. So now these schools, because all the kids are imitating this behavior, the schools where a lot of these shows took place don't want wrestling anymore. Right. So the, the the people who were promoting these shows, some of which were telemarketed shows, which were fundraisers for different organizations, and they would get your local wrestling promoter to provide the show in exchange for a flat fee. So now instead of booking wrestling shows, they're booking charity basketball games they're booking comedy nights they're booking anything else but wrestling and so now that's starting to disappear so this is when i came along tony rumble was promoting and then after he passed away he saw the changes in the business coming and i said well you know let me see if i can find a a venue and i'll start promoting local shows with local guys and you know continuity angles and programs going to the same place every month and not, you know, not, not going once a year. Cause these sold shows, you'd go to a town and you may not go back to that town for a year or two years. Right. So why would you show from you? Exactly. So why would you run angles and things like that? You'd want exactly. to just do a self-contained show. Exactly. Exactly. So I wanted to do angles. I wanted to do, you know, continuity and bring guys along. Cause I would see these guys on these shows for Kowalski and some of the other local promoters and some of them were real hardworking, really deserving guys. And they're going up and down the road for a, you know, a hot dog and a handshake. Hmm. And I'm saying like, they're not, they're not giving people what all of what they could give them because there's no continuity. So, you know, you're not, they're not getting a chance to cut promos. They're not getting a chance to do angles. They're not getting a chance to engage the audience. They're just having a match. And sure, you can tell a story within a match and engage people in that respect. But then it goes away. You don't come back to that town for two years. What did you do? It's like a tree. You're having a match and there's a value in that. And maybe you're getting to work with a, a big former star if you're lucky but if you're not that lucky, you're on that card and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to make your way in the business is nobody's giving you that ability to be showcased. Tony Rumble was a little bit different. He had a cable access show. And he had angles and he had programs and he had they were giving guys, you know, you could see guys in your local 
you know, cable access station and follow it from week to week. And there was continuity. And, and, and I said, yeah, that's, that's what pro wrestling is to me. It was helped by the fact that he had some TV. Right. I mean, because I right. would say that right. really before the because I remember those days in, in New York, mm-hmm. like before, like you said, the attitude era or even before, you know, ECW is another big part of it. Before ECW right. got hot mm-hmm. and a lot of indies started trying to copy what they were doing, that was your standard independent wrestling show. It was, yeah. uh, you know, it was very self-contained. There weren't there weren't really promos unless it was just a brief you know, heel just doing some crowd work before a match, you know, just taunting the crowd. They weren't really what you'd call promos. It was like, um, or you you were setting something up that was going to happen later in the night, right? Later in the night, contained in that night, there would be a right, a self-contained angle for the night. And I remember too, it would be, you know, the shows would be a mixture of either older people that fans remembered from the WWF, let's say, Mm -hmm. and up and coming people that, they didn't really know too much about, but would maybe one day become stars. In some cases they would. Right. And the audiences were very like, uh, you you saw this, I'm sure the audiences really changed where, especially with the ECW phenomenon before that, it was like a lot of just families and little old ladies and people from the neighborhood would come down. Nice. And the, you know, the guy that owned the, the candy mm-hmm. store would, would be, and then it became more like this dedicated kind of more, uh, what do you want to call it? Like um, just passionate sort of indie wrestling fan base kind of took right. over, right. It became a whole different kind of audience. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I, I always shot for the family audience. You know, I, I wanted to bring, I wanted kids to come and enjoy it, not just hardcore fans. Because really, in, in those days, independent wrestling as we know it now was really just getting started. Right. There were really only a handful of promoters in, in, in this part of the country that were really independent wrestling. A big influence on me was a guy by the name of Dennis Coraluzzo. Of course. I mean, Dennis was a great promoter, and you could say that he was a character, and you could say a lot of things about Dennis, but Dennis was a, a great guy. He was a great promoter. Yes, he was a character, but, you know, there's a lot of great guys that came through his promotions. That, you know, you you, and I said, wow, you know, he'd have guys from Japan. He'd have guys from here, there, and everywhere, and I, you know, along with his local guys, and he had his local guys who had followings. I said, well, why can't we do that up here? And so that's what we tried to do. Yeah, that that was and that was um, at the time that was something new. And I I do think, you know, ECW played a big part in that, too, because they kind of demonstrated that you can start as, quote unquote, an indie, however you want to define that term. And you don't have to be limited by the definition of what people think of as an indie. You could sort of make it whatever right. you want. You could, you could, I mean, in his case, he wound up making it into, you know, the number three wrestling company in the industry got to right. the point where you couldn't even call it an indie anymore, but, but it sort right. of set the standard for, you know, we can do more than what has been done up to this point in, in indie wrestling. Right. My, my philosophy when I started promoting was I didn't want to have any stars. Right. Well, he, he was no making stars. all of them. I mean, he was making another one. I should mention well, no, too. At first, he didn't. At first, he had guys like oh, right, Jimmy yeah. Snuka. At first, That's he true. had right, and then he eased his Morocco own guys and got them Santana. over. Right. 
Yeah, people right. like that. And also, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention too, at the same time was happening Smoky Mountain Wrestling too. They were right. sort of like the antithesis of ECW, like the the, mm-hmm. the two sides mm-hmm. of a coin. But, you know, they're an interesting case because I, I, I always saw them, and I think Cornette probably saw it the same way as whether it's reality or not. I didn't see them so much as an indie as a new territory that's starting up, you know, they exactly. were, they were on TV and they had ongoing storylines and they also had what, what made them a little bit more than an indie to me was they were operating in a marketplace where WWF really wasn't around that much. So they stake, if you lived in that area, they kind of felt like this is our wrestling, you know, like to me, that's exactly. one of the definitions of what a territory is, because if right. you're running a wrestling right. promotion in an area where you're totally overshadowed by the WWF in that area, well, that's more of an independent to me. You are independent. If you are right. dominant in your region, then you're a territory, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's right. That's right. But, you know, we didn't have a choice. We we started in an area that is one of the biggest sports markets in the world. You got the Celtics, you got the Bruins, you got the Red Sox, you got the New England Patriots. I mean, you know, where's a, a little wrestling company fall in with all that it, it, next to nowhere, you know? But I saw Tony Rumble do it, and, you know, he had his niche. He had some shows at that period of time. You know, he could go into a high school gym and pack a couple of thousand people in that gym. That's incredible. On the, these sold shows, yeah. Especially we, thinking we, about that now. I mean, you yeah. know, you, you have five hundred people at an indie show, and it's it'll it'll it makes headlines. You know, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's fantastic. So, you know, but he saw it all change, and he knew that that those sold shows were going away. So he would do smaller shows in a smaller venue. And sometimes he'd have names, friends of his who would come up and help him out. And, you know, sometimes it was just the local guys. But, uh, you know, I, I, when I started, I just said, you know, let, let, let's leave the, the big names out of this. And let's just try to make something, you know, this, here we are. We're your friendly neighborhood wrestling company with, you know, the guys who, are from around here and maybe from outside of here too. Because when I started promoting, you know, if you were a, a, a guy who was trying to get started in wrestling, there weren't a lot of places you could go. Like, because there weren't a lot of independent shows. And people would show up to NECW from all over. I mean, if you go back and you look at some of the cards that we were doing back in 2000, 2001, you'd see a lot of names that were became pretty famous people later on. Um, there's a guy who was on our second show uh, who had written to me and uh, he said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be on vacation in the United States. And I always wanted to wrestle there. You think you could find a spot for me? And I happened to see a tape with him on it. His name is Doug Williams. And that was his first match in the United States. Oh, wow. For us. And he would come back on his own dime you know, every couple of months to have a match, whatever. And through a, a few connections with the Cauliflower Alley Club, I got him to 
uh, I got him to the destroyer, Dick Byer, who got him into pro wrestling Noah. And that's how his career started to take off. That's, that's really interesting. Those kind of connections are wild. Just the, where people's careers take them and where people first get right. noticed. Like I have to imagine that given the time frame and the location that you had to have crossed paths with a young triple H and or China, right? Yeah. Yeah. You had to, they never worked for me, but, but cause they, they were gone before I started promoting, they were in, but I knew them both. Yeah. You know, what, I mean, I wouldn't say uh, I was close friends with either one of them. I, I always liked Paul. I thought he was a great guy. Yeah. Well, yeah. he's, a and local... I like Joni too. Yeah. They, did they, did they know each other going back that far? They knew of each other. I think they knew of each other. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, cause you always get the impression everything. Cause I mean, I, I worked over there when he was there and I worked with him but he was already a huge star. But the impression I yeah. always got was that he was, he grew up a huge fan. He he really, truly genuinely loved it and enjoyed yeah. it. And at the same time also had a head on his shoulders, which we're definitely seeing now, obviously, right, but he, right. he wasn't flaky. He wasn't a carny. He, he was, you know, he, he had both of those things where he really, truly had a passion for doing it. And he also was smart at the same time. Yeah, he, he was one of the boys, but you could see that he was a cut above everybody else. Yeah. And by a cut above, I mean, he had class. He had, you know, he was a kid who had had his shit together, you know. Well, his parents, have his parents are really good people. I met them a oh, few yeah. times at mm-hmm. WWE. They're very mm-hmm. completely down to earth, you know, just unassuming. Right. I think I forget. I think his dad is, was a doctor or something like that, if I'm remembering right. So, I mean, he can't, he, mm. I'm sure he had a wonderful upbringing, you know, can't say that yeah. about everybody that comes into the That's wrestling right. business, you know, That's that, right. that makes a difference, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I have to ask you before I run out of time, and this is just my indulgences because I have my own interests beyond the world of wrestling, but I have to ask about the, the early years in theater. How did that come about? Now, in the beginning, I said Broadway, but was I wrong? Were you strictly in Boston, or did you also? I was strictly in Boston, but I worked on Broadway shows on tour. Like, like what so shows? When they would come through Boston, right? Annie and Chorus Line, and that's fantastic. Because uh, on the Roof, and you know, all kinds of stuff. My, uh, all kinds I, of. Pre- I'm sorry. Pre-Broadway shows and so forth. You know, some of which you might have heard of, some which maybe not. Well, my because uh, my uncle was in the theater he was an an actor and a singer and he he was on broadway only one time in the 60s uh in a Mm -hmm. show called pickwick which was kind of a flop they were trying to duplicate oliver they were trying to do like another dickens inspired musical right and it it did really well in london and Mm. they brought it here and it flopped but but what he specialized in doing was those national tours of broadway shows so he wouldn't be in the broadway Mm -hmm. production but like he did it for camelot he did it for right. Little Abner and Fiorello and uh, sure. shows like that. That would that would be a hit on Broadway, and then they would hit the road, and 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 that's where he would kick in. Mm. So, but this was more like 50s, 60s era, and it would be a little before you were right. doing it. Right. Yeah, I, I um, started. Uh, I got a job with a, a small theater company here. Uh, doing the PR because I wanted to be a DJ and I had a lot of me- local media connections and I, I couldn't, I couldn't get a foothold. 
you know, typically if you're going to be in broadcasting, you start in a small market and you work your way up. But unfortunately for me, I was born into a big market. Hmm. So, well, yeah, I, I, I used to hang around stations as a kid and I had little jobs here and little jobs there. You know, for me to make that leap and get on the air, that wasn't that wasn't in the cards because the guys who were on the air in Boston were the best of the best. Some of the, the, the top announcers in the country would come through and you'd meet them and so on and so forth. And I knew I wasn't in their league. So I was just trying to find a niche for myself in that industry. And uh, I, you know, I couldn't, <laughs> you know, try as I might, I couldn't. But I, I, I met this guy who was a, a local actor and he says, well, you know, he says, I, we need somebody to help get the word out about our shows. I mean, you, you've been around, you know, all these television stations and radio stations and, you know, people, maybe, maybe you'd be good at doing publicity. And I said, yeah, you know, yeah, that might be fun. So I took to it very quickly because now I had another excuse to nag all the people I was trying to get a job from. Oh, I'm working with this theater company. I've got the show. Here's a couple of tickets. Come on down, you know. And so I became a, a pretty decent press agent. And then before I knew it, the bigger theaters started to get interested in having me come in. And because when a lot of times when some of these shows would go on the road, they have to have a union press agent. Right. There's a, a union called ATPAM. It's the Association of Theatrical Press Agents and Managers. And every national tour, every Broadway show has to have a union press agent and a union manager. But many times, because they're on the road, they don't want to send a guy from New York and put him up and have to pay him a per diem and so forth. So as long as there's a, a, a union press agent that has the main contract for the show, they can hire anybody as an associate to do the actual work. So that was me. My specialty became working with all the people that nobody else wanted to work with. <laughs> That's some specialty. <laughs> Aging female stars. Oh, boy. People. In fact, the very first producer that I ever worked for was a guy by the name of Bob Fishko. And it was on the national tour of the Rocky Horror Show. Not the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Right. But the Rocky Horror Show, the live musical. So... I'm in this guy's office in Times Square, and he looks at me. He says, kids, if you're going to be a press agent. you got to remember one thing. There's two kinds of actors, crazy and hospital crazy. <laughs> as long as you can keep that in mind and keep your wits about you and not be a fan boy and not be a uh, starstruck, you'll do fine. So. I started getting all these people that nobody else wanted to work with. People that were certifiable. I worked with Yul Brenner on the national tour of The King and I. Oh, my God. Yul Brenner was a very nice man. I got to be fairly friendly with him. But Yul Brenner believed he was the king of Siam in real life. <laughs> There are some legendary stories about Yul Brenner, and I will share one or two of them with you. Oh, thank you. This is great for the crossover of wrestling and Yul Brenner fans, of which I am one. Please go ahead. Right. Well, Yul Brenner had superstitions. He believed if you whistled in an empty theater, it meant death. So knowing this, stagehands all over the country would find some poor schmuck to start whistling when he walked in, and he would go crazy. 
he would grab them around the neck and, and you'd have to pry him off the guy. So oh, I witnessed God. this on many, and it was one of the people trying to pry him off of some poor schlub who was sweeping up the theater, a janitor or whatever. Uh, there's a famous story, which I can bear witness to, which took place in the Fisher Theater in Detroit. Wherever Yul Brenner played, whatever theater he went to, he had a rider in his contract that the dressing room, his dressing room, had to have tan walls and a chocolate brown carpet. Tan walls and a chocolate brown carpet. That's right. His rationale for that was he wanted all of the places that he played to have some, some similarity, you know, so that his surroundings to have some consistency. That was his rider. Tan walls, brown. If you go to star dressing rooms all over the country in Broadway theaters, you will see tan walls of brown carpet. That's the reason why, because Yul Brenner played that theater. So we're at oh, the wow. Fisher Theater in Detroit. I, I am filling in for somebody, and I'm, I'm, I'm acting as his bodyguard gopher, man Friday, whatever. And I, I like the guy immensely. I thought he was just a great, great guy. But he had his he had his things, you know. So we get to the Fisher Theater, and he opens the door to the dressing room. The door doesn't open all the way. There's a sink behind the door. Now, the Fisher Theater was built at the turn of the century. Right. It's an old, old building. So he asked me to go get the house carpenter. House carpenter comes and says, Mr. Brenner, what can I do for you? And Neil Brenner goes, I want you to move the sink to the other side of the room. <laughs> Mr. Brenner, it's a, it's not a piece of furniture. It's a sink. There's pipes. So he gets this crazed look in his face. With his bare hands, he grabs the sink, pulls it out of the wall, throws it in the middle of the room. Then this water spurting all over the place, folds his arms like the king of Siam, and he goes, I think you can move it now. <laughs> they had to work day and night to get the dressing room in shape, and they moved the sink. Wow. They figured out how they could move the sink for Yul Brenner. So, they, and I was there. I can I can testify to that. They don't make people like that anymore. They don't. They, they don't. I, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world, but it's kind of interesting how back then, you know, there would be stories like that of, and and they would get away with it because they were stars, and everybody would go, "Well, yeah. that's just how they are," and they're a big star. And there's no way, I mean, there's there's so much more scrutiny now and accountability. And like I'm saying, I mean, it's not the worst thing in the world, but it's just right. so astonishing how different it was. You hear so many yeah. stories like that. I think I don't even know what's worse, uh, movies or theater, but you hear stories about, you know, the things that the actors or the directors would do and just completely right. unhinged behavior that everybody would just have to kind of just grit your teeth to deal with it. Oh, he's the star of the show. You know, I, I did press for the, the pre-Broadway tryout of a Broadway musical called woman of the year. Lauren Bacall starred Lauren Bacall. Yes. Yeah. She was a great, great lady, but she was the, the guy that they sent up to be the original press agent and her got along like oil and water. Mm. She demanded he be fired and there was nobody else to, to do the work. And I volunteered and people thought I was nuts. They said, this woman is crazy. You're going to, you're asking for trouble, blah, blah, blah. 
I'll do it. Um, the writers of the show were John Kander and Fred Ebb, who wrote Cabaret and so many other shows. I wanted to get a chance to pal around with them a little bit and talk to them and so forth. Um, but anyway, she at this point in her life was, you know, she was in her 60s at this point, And she's, you know, for her, this lady who was at this stage mega famous, the press wouldn't leave her alone. Uh, I developed, you know, uh, some sympathy for her. In order for, she liked to right. walk places. So what she would do is she would dress up like a bag lady just so she could walk the streets like a normal person and nobody would, would bother her. You know, and here she is. She's, you know, pushing. A, she's a senior citizen, basically. Yeah. And she's singing and dancing eight times a week. And that's not easy. You know, she was doing the yoga and the vocal exercises and so forth. And, you know, you develop a healthy respect for somebody with that kind of work ethic. You know, at that end, she was um, very, uh, very uh, close with her children. Uh, her children were very, very nice, especially her daughter, daughter Leslie Bogart, who uh, was a nurse in the area. She was working at um, one of the hospitals here and very, very nice girl. And, you know, not too enamored of her mother's lifestyle choices, and, hmm. but, you know, just what very about, down to earth people. What about her, her, her father's lifestyle choices? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's another story altogether. But no, she she was just a, a, a great lady. And, you know, I, I ended up being very protective of her hmm. because you know, some people, everybody wants to get to them. What you want to do is you want to protect them. You want to keep people from getting to them. And, and as long as she knew that I was on her side, we were cool. And uh, I, I just developed a great affection for her. That's so fascinating. I, I love hearing those kinds of stories. Maybe it's because too, even you know, because of wrestling, I I, I wound up. Well, that prepared me paths. for being a wrestling promoter. Yeah, you know, if I was gonna... crazy old Hollywood people. Then you can handle anybody. That's a funny thing because I wanted to bring it full circle to that, which is like the the skill of managing these larger than life histrionic sometimes difficult personalities like i was going to ask you you know from from your experience in theater what were similarities that you have seen in wrestling at wrestling versus true pure i mean people say wrestling is theater but wrestling versus what we think of as as pure theater i guess that would be one of the similarities right i mean it, it, it you know i always enjoyed talking to directors and writers, you know, about how their thought process worked. One of the guys that I got to know a little bit during a, a pre-Broadway tryout of the musical Dancing was Bob Fosse. Great guy and a genius and, and just down to earth guy who, who, you know, would tell you little things about sharing his perspectives of art and movement and shapes and, so forth. And, you know, you'd sit there and you'd listen to him and you'd watch him work and you just became really, you'd learn a lot. You know, part of the great thing about being a, a PR guy for a theatrical production is you're trying to tell the story of that production and you're a witness to what the what's going on in terms of putting it together, especially the pre-Broadway tryouts. 
you know, they're, they're getting a show ready for Broadway and numbers are going out and numbers are going in, or they're making changes to a script and, and you're sitting there and you're, you know, the writer would say to you, well, what did you think about this? Did you like that number? Did you not like that number? What do you think? You know, who am I? You know? <laughs> and but, then there's you know, always, they would the, ask. there's always the case of, mm. I mean, in some cases, the shows don't even make it to Broadway. There, there's the old, uh, Closed out of town right. expression. They used to say my, my uncle was I've in one. I've seen more than a few of those. There was one called Matahari, which the they did, which kind of derailed my uncle's career. It was it was following the Pickwick thing and the the Dickens right. one. It was a musical based on Matahari, who was you know, the famous female spy. I guess World War One or two or mm. something. And they'd made a musical about her, and it was going to be a huge hit. It had Blythe Danner in it, uh, um, who's uh, um, um what's her name's mother um oh man can't think of it now the oh well anyway Blythe Danner was in it and and uh Dominic Chianese who played Uncle Junior on the Sopranos was in it oh wow uh before he even did Godfather 2 it had this whole cast and they had some of the most disastrous uh previews i think it might have even been boston where they had sets collapsing and the lead singer losing her voice it was just an absolute disaster and they never even made it to broadway and i think that was right, the last right. time he even had a whiff of broadway that was maybe mm. like 60 1969 ish or so but you hear about those kind of horror stories too there was a producer that i worked for at one time by the name of mitch lee Mitch Lee wrote the music and lyrics to Man of La Mancha, amongst other things. So there was a period in the uh, late 70s when they did these big, this big revival of Man of La Mancha, and they played big theaters all over the country with heavy TV advertising. And this was a, a you know, normally the theaters that uh, show like a Man of La Mancha would play would be like, you know, 1,500 seats, 1,600, 1,800 seats, whatever. So what they did was, what Mitch Lee did was he, he took this revival out on the road and they're playing now 4,000 seat theaters, but they're going into all these towns and they've got this heavy TV advertising, like, like you know, spending all this cash on television advertising with the, you know, testimonials from the people seeing the show. Oh, it left me weak and weepy and blah, blah, blah. And he made so much money on this on on this tour. He did it with um, with with um, Man of La Mancha, which he was the writer of, and he did it again with Fiddler on the Roof. He had made so much money that that he wrote another show called Sarava, a musical that was based on the the Brazilian uh, the foreign film Donna Flor and her two husbands. Mm -hmm. So they do this and they try it out at the Colonial in Boston and it's horrible. <laughs> it is God awful. It was playing in, in, in the wintertime and it was one performance where there were 12 people in the audience. Wow. But what he was doing was he was living up, it up in a mansion on Beacon Hill and they're spending all this cash because he had made so much money on Man of La Mancha that he was doing a deliberate flop to get a tax write-off. So it's the producers. The whole thing basically. was a giant tax write-off. <laughs> it's like the producers, yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. You know, it I come I, to life. 
Yeah, I, I I watch that movie and I always think, well, what, what would stop anyone from actually really doing that? It, it actually seems right. completely plausible, but that's hilarious. Well, Sheldon, I could talk about wrestling and theater, uh, both of those topics forever. Uh, so so this has been really great. Um, I didn't even know you had those incredible showbiz stories, because if, if I had, I would have probably spent half the hour just talking about that. But but thank you so well, much. We'll for, have to come back and do this again sometime where we can yes. pick up where we left off. W- without question, we will, because this is like my sweet spot here. Just And even just the intersection and the cross-section of, you know, the world of promotions, even beyond wrestling. And those kind of things really fascinate me. So this has been great. I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. And and by the way, it's before we stop, too, before we stop, if you could just tell people the best way that they can find out more about um, NECW, too. Our website is necw.tv. We're at NECW Wrestling on Facebook. We have a YouTube channel, which is also NECW Wrestling. And uh, if you uh, have a smart TV or even your phone or whatever, you want to download Plymouth Rock TV, which is a free channel. It's a free app. Uh, You can watch a lot of our old shows on there. We're on uh, two hours a night from 9 to 11 p.m. all over the country. Well, there you go. You've taken it national, Sheldon. You've done it. Yes, we have. (laughs) Thank you so much. This has been terrific. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. There you have it, folks. My conversation with my friend, Sheldon Goldberg. I hope you enjoyed that. I always love those kind of conversations, getting to talk about the indie scene in that era and and, and in that area is fascinating to me. Also, just all that Boston stuff. You know, my dad used to watch the Bedlam from Boston Paul Bowser TV show uh, when he was a kid. So that's always interesting to me. Hope you enjoyed the show. We've got a lot of good ones coming up. I want to say that next week, finally, been sitting on this one for a while. Next week's episode, my guest is going to be Keith Caramello, who was a graphic designer for WWE, designed the undisputed uh, heavyweight championship belt from years ago, designed the long-running WWE U.S. title belt, did lots of other things for them. A great friend of Taz, tattoo artist to many of the wrestlers, designed Brock Lesnar's um, uh, skull tattoo. So we have a lot of cool stuff to talk about. That's coming next week. Uh, Other guests that I am working on that you are going to enjoy, a member of the Arcadian Vanguard family, John McAdam of the Stick to Wrestling podcast, who I know going back to the tape trading days, he's going to be my guest in the weeks to come. Herb Simmons, longtime St. Louis promoter, friend of Sam Mushnick and Larry Matisik, he's going to be a guest coming up uh, in the weeks to come on Shut Up and Wrestle, and even... My co-host on the PWI podcast from Pro Wrestling Illustrated, uh, senior editor Al Castle will be a guest in the weeks to come on Shut Up and Wrestle. So keep listening. You know, our website is suawpod.com. You can find it there. You can also find it wherever you find your podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addict, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you go, you will find Shut Up and Wrestle. 
There's also the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group. Please join if you haven't. I post a lot of cool stuff there. In fact, unless I'm a complete slacker, uh, by the time you're listening to this, there should be a whole bunch of photos posted there from my experience at Cauliflower Alley Club this year. So that's the kind of cool stuff you could find on the Facebook group if you want to join it. My book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, is still available in print, digital, and audio form on Amazon. I'm also pleased to say that I do have a few leftover post-CAC, a few leftover books that I can personally autograph and uh, and send to you. If you're interested in buying one of those, please reach out to me at my email address, Solomon at yahoo.com. And I would be happy to discuss that with you. Uh, there's also the wrestling news. I'm sure a lot of you out there have been enjoying it. I got a ton of positive feedback on the wrestling news that we've been doing here at Arcadian Vanguard. I heard a lot of great stuff while I was in Vegas. So people are listening. Keep listening and enjoying at thewrestlingnews.com. The magazines that I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, they just have their uh, PWI 500 issue available now, and you can get that in any of the other ones at pwi-online.com. There's also Inside the Ropes magazine, which you can get at insidetheropesmagazine.com. And if you happen to be looking for me, of course, if you, if you want to buy one of my books or if you just want to find me, you can get me on uh, Twitter or Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. On Facebook, I have my author Facebook page, Brian Solomon Writer. And if you go to any of those social media platforms, you will find a link to my author web page on this thing we call the World Wide Web, if that's what you're looking for. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that there is no I in team, but there is an I in Brian. So long, wrestling fans. 